We have with us today Marsha Veldman, who in 2013 founded the South Central Indiana chapter of the Citizens Climate Lobby, a nonpartisan organization working to build political consensus for stabilizing climate change. Uh, she's currently supporting group leaders of the 11 statewide chapters as the state coordinator for CCL. Um, Marsha managed the Bloomington Community Farmers Market for 24 years, where a lot of people will know her from, and is an advocate for food justice, food security, and environmental sustainability. She is one of the founders of Green Drinks Bloomington, a monthly lecture series which is reactivating this month after a hiatus, I believe. Uh, her work with Green Sanctuary Task Force um, uh, yielded uh, funding for the installation of 152 solar panels at the Unitarian Universalist Church in Bloomington. She lives in Brown County on a small farm where she gardens with fellow food activists, growing food and building community. Um, so why don't you start off with uh, telling us uh, what you, what you uh, mean by food justice. We know food security is the term for what used to be just called hunger um, to make sure people have what they need. Is there a little different connotation to food justice? Yeah, well, first, thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, and yeah, when when I say food justice, some of the things I think about are that, you know, it's a human right to have access to healthy, nutritious, culturally appropriate food. And so that's mostly what I'm thinking about very broadly. And um, CCL is a broader national and I guess international organization uh, focused on national policy. So you guys are kind of the intersection between local and regional issues here in Indiana and national policy uh, to address the global climate crisis. Um, I guess you're working in all the congressional districts. Um, does that mean that you're not really focused on uh, state legislation like Hoosier Environmental Council or Hoosier Action does? So, yeah, Citizens Climate Lobby, our main focus is on the national level and passing significant climate change legislation to address the crisis that we are facing. Um, but in the last couple of years, we have also worked at the state level. Um, and we see that as, you know, you could call it grass tops work, where you are working with people who are influential. Um, we see many of the folks in the state house become our members of Congress on the federal level. And there's quite a bit of communication between the two. So as we you know, make connections in the state house and build support for climate action in the state house, it also helps with our relationships with our members of Congress at the federal level. And are there any particular legislative uh, accomplishments uh, that you guys can claim having some part of? Yeah, we can. Um, so 
are, you know, I would say one of the things that um, was our biggest success was the Inflation Reduction Act. Of course, there were many, many groups working on this, but citizens, climate lobby volunteers around the country had about a quarter of a million contacts with their members of Congress during the, the time in which the Inflation Reduction Act was being addressed. And we had just countless um, meetings with lobby meetings with our members of Congress, as well as like emails and phone calls and a variety of ways of communicating our interest in um, aspects of that. And that act is the single largest legislation passed anywhere ever around climate change. So it is very significant and uh, we certainly worked hard to help get it across the finish line along with many other partners in the climate movement. And how about at the uh, state level in Indiana, anything like almost get through committee or actually uh, uh, happen? I, I think Senator Braun is at least one uh, in this Republican controlled state who has acknowledged human caused climate change. I don't know if you could cite anyone else who actually acknowledges that. I mean, in the uh, Republican primary debates, there may have been one or two that uh, acknowledged human caused climate change, but generally the, the scenario is that it's a hoax. And, uh, and I know you guys are working, you know, across the aisle trying to build a consensus um, has any of that kind of come to fruition in the state in any uh, tangible way that people can look to? Yeah, we, you know, we are a nonpartisan grassroots organization. And um, we work with members of any party that they want to belong to and um, try to work towards finding common ground, developing a relationship and moving forward on climate change legislation. So we are seeing significant movement um, with our members of Congress in the Republican Party, where there's greater interest in addressing climate change. Um, in the House, there's a, in the U.S. House, there's a large group of re representatives that form the House Climate Solutions Caucus. And in the Senate, there is a bipartisan group that you mentioned, Senator Braun, who um, is quite concerned about climate change and is taking action on that front. And he um, helped form the Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus in the US Senate. And um, they have been educating themselves and um, they have taken some stances on um, bills that they support. So, um, and you know, we continue to see our members of Congress on both sides of the aisle more and more engaged on the climate change issue. 
And uh, just this past weekend, uh, uh, thousands of students, activists, indigenous groups, and others gathered in New York for the march to end fossil fuels. Uh, the protesters are calling on the Biden administration to stop federal approvals of new fossil fuel projects, to phase out oil and gas drilling on public land, to halt oil and gas exports, and to transition to renewable energy. They also want Biden to declare climate change a national emergency, which is something that his primary challenger, Marianne Williamson, also running for the Democratic nomination for the presidency, has pledged to do should she defeat the Republican candidate. Uh, she has praised measures taken by the Biden administration, but notes that the approval of the Willow Project would negate the greenhouse gas reductions achieved by the IRA. Um, are you guys also supportive of Biden administration um, taking taking that route? We are supportive of significant climate action and um you know, we primarily work with our members, our representatives in the House and in the Senate, and um, very much are encouraging them to meet the goals set forth by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the 50% reduction by 2030 in net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. So we um, we have our areas of focus that we work on. We are really happy that there's other groups around the country that are also focused on climate change and working different angles of it. But um, we have four main areas of focus that we work on. And one of them is, which has been our main, main focus for, the 10 years I've been working with Citizens Climate Lobby, and that's passing carbon fee and dividend legislation that would place a price on carbon emissions. And that price would be placed at the source. So like at the coal mine, at the, at the gas well. So it's placed at the source and it rises over time. And then the revenue generated from that price is returned to households because low and moderate income households should not bear the burden of addressing climate change. And so once that money is returned to households, those on the lower end of the economic spectrum actually will come out financially ahead, even though you know, the price of a gallon of gas would go up, but because they are getting the revenue back from that um, carbon fee, they actually come out financially ahead. So it, it's a, I think a pretty elegant plan and it's one that has garnered quite a bit of support. And um, so that's been, our number one focus, um, and it um, over time, I think the um, the value of placing a fee on carbon has become widely 
acknowledged. Just uh, last week, um, African leaders at the African Climate Summit unanimously, you know, asked the world for a price on carbon, um, you know, because to address the inequities of the current situation where, um, you know, in Africa, they are hold so little um, responsibility for <laughs> the greenhouse gas emissions that are in the atmosphere, and yet they're bearing such a great burden. So, um, so yeah, carbon price has been our big focus and one that returns that revenue to households, which is a really key piece <laughs> um, to make it equitable. And then the other areas that we're working in um, are healthy forests and uh, building electrification and efficiency and clean energy permitting reform. In these three additional areas were just added in this past year and they really dovetail off of the Inflation Reduction Act. So we're really trying to help amplify the benefits of the Inflation Reduction Act. So for example, like on the clean energy permitting reform, right now for a big transmission project, it can take up to 10 years to work its way through the process. And there are just countless clean energy projects waiting to get in the queue to be able to transmit energy on the power lines. And so by having that permitting reform, we can realize some of the benefits of this building electrification. And that would be the Big Wires Act, which is an acronym for building integrated grids with interregional energy supply that was advanced uh, by Senator Hickenlooper, Democrat of Colorado, and Representative Scott Peters, Democrat of California. Is that, is that the one to do with the uh, permitting reform? That is, yep. That is one aspect of it, and it's an important aspect of it. One of the things that that act does is it requires for... So the grid is kind of managed in different regions. And then Texas is its own thing, which many people have heard about the challenges uh, that Texas experienced by being its own thing and not connected to any of the rest of the grid. So one of the things that that act requires, I believe it's that 30%, that there could be sharing of up to 30%, or at least, excuse me, at least 30% of energy from one area to the next. So, you know, typically when there's some sort of natural disaster, say there's a uh, tornado here in Indiana, and we have problems with our grid, if another area that is producing energy and has access could share the energy we may, you know, not experience as long of uh, delays in having electricity available to us. And and uh, that format you were you were talking about sounded kind of like a 
reparations or carbon offsets as far as the subsidies coming to people paid by the corporations. Uh, the corporations can kind of pay to continue to pollute. Uh, is that sort of the scenario there? Is it part of an exchange? Um, how does that how does that work exactly? I I am not sure. But if you could say your question again, I'm not sure I understood it. The the uh, putting a price on carbon. Mm-hmm. You, know, you say that the pollution point would pay, and I guess that goes into some system. Uh, I know in the past people were talking about uh, carbon trading, and in a way that kind of is like the uh, carbon offsets where they can pay someone else to plant trees or draw down carbon in some other kind of way. But uh, you're saying that basically it's increasing the price of producing carbon, but subsidizing people so that they can offset the likely rise in prices that they will have to encounter, which is, of course, one of the main cries against regulation of, of climate change is that it will, in you know, be harder on the poor. Sure. Yeah. So the the carbon fee and dividend structure does not allow for um, fossil fuel companies to like trade permits or, you know, buy excess permits. It's a really simple, transparent, effective way in that if, you know, at the coal mine, if you have a ton of potential carbon emissions, you will pay a fee on that. And so, and it's, we're talking about doing it at the source so it doesn't get lost down the way, you know? So it's, that fee is charged at the coal mine or at the oil well. And so those companies pay that fee and it would go into like a carbon trust that the US government manages. And then that is then returned, that revenue is returned to households as a dividend. So there's, you know, there's not the carbon trading or the carbon offsets. It is just a really simple, straightforward fee and it escalates over time. And that will just demonstrate to the markets, to the businesses, to everyone who's paying any attention that the cost of fossil fuels is gonna continue to rise year after year. So it'll drive investment, towards towards renewables it will encourage businesses to become more energy efficient and um, and it will through the the dividend portion will ensure that low and moderate income households aren't financially um, hurt by the increasing prices and the adoption of renewables, particularly solar over the years has brought down the price tremendously to where I believe it's cheaper now than fossil fuels. Um, I guess this program would maybe be in some kind of block grant format down to regional areas or uh, programs that people could apply to, or would it kind of 
offset it at the point of the utility? So the, the fee is at the point of extraction, but the, the dividends go directly to households. So a household can decide how they want to utilize their dividend. You know, they may choose to work towards greater efficiency because they too will know that costs will keep going up. And so if you, you know, invest in, you know, whether it's insulation or solar panels, you are going to help to uh, buffer yourself against those increasing costs. But it's entirely up to the households, um, how they want to utilize the revenue from the dividend. Would that be like a tax rebate or tax credit? It would be um, a monthly probably deposited straight into a checking account as opposed to a physical check arriving. And it's based on um, the number of individuals in a household. And we have had um, pretty much our legislation introduced into the um, the House on two occasions um, and are fully anticipating any day now for it to be introduced again as the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. In the last Congress, we um, worked very closely with members of the House, um, encouraging their sponsorship of the, we call it the EICDA, the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. And by the close of the last congressional um, session, it had 95 co-sponsors on it. So there's 435 members in the House. So it had significant support in the House, including um, Representative Andre Carson, who uh, represents the Indianapolis area. After one of our lobby meetings with his office, he joined on as one of the co-sponsors and a, a strong supporter of it. And you also mentioned uh, forestation as one of your four primary things. Um, the plan to log and burn in Indiana as part of the Buffalo Springs project affecting the Hoosier National Forest was there was at least a stay on one part of it near Lake Monroe here after a lawsuit by certain county officials and organizations. Um, do you guys... Have you weighed in on that at all as far as the prescribed burn thing and how that would be releasing carbon? And so far, it looks pretty clear cut uh, the way the way it's being implemented. And then they don't replant and invasive species are, are encroaching by this manner because they just expect the squirrels to handle the, the replanting after they go in and, and, and cut out a lot. Um, it seems pretty counter to, uh, you know, holding that reserve, especially given all the forest fires all over the world and Canada and everywhere, when all that carbon has gone up and there's not a lot of carbon sinking and trees and forests have to reach a certain point before they're actually a carbon sink. So have you guys uh, weighed in on that or have any other forestry programs here in the state? 
So um, I did attend the meeting that Senator Braun convened in Paoli regarding the Buffalo Springs project and provided you know, a statement on behalf of Citizens Climate Lobby Indiana in support of caring for the forests so that they can be healthy, that they can be carbon sinks. And uh, yeah, and I do believe the uh, it was the Houston South project by Monroe that has been put on hold um, at this point in time. So we're continuing to um, communicate with Senator Braun's office and to lesser extent the USDA, but um, with Senator Braun's office about our interest in um, the forest being managed as carbon sinks, because we do know like, while we need to radically reduce human caused greenhouse gas emissions, that complementary to that is we need to sequester carbon in the ground. And um, that's healthy forests can sequester significant amounts of carbon. And if you don't mind, to that end, we do have an upcoming program. Um, we're working with the Sycamore Land Trust and on um, September, whoop, 28th, I had to remember. On September 28th, we have Dr. Kim Novick, who's from the O'Neill School, and she'll be talking about the opportunities and pitfalls surrounding what's called nature-based solutions to climate change. So that is the sequestering of carbon in the soils and the reducing of nature-based emissions from like wetlands. And um, I think it's going to be really an excellent conversation. She is nationally recognized in this area. And um, one of the things I'm looking forward to is learning more about like what does really work because there's, um, you mentioned carbon offsets earlier and um, Right now, it's a little bit of the Wild West in the world of carbon offsets, where there's just, um, yeah, various carbon markets that um, aren't very uh, regulated and working from various levels of knowledge as to what is truly sequestering carbon. So I'm eager to learn more from her about this area. So that is on September 28th at seven o'clock and you can go to the Sycamore Land Trust website. Their events page has information on that and you can register there. Yeah, and that is a free virtual lecture. And I believe she's the director of the PhD program in environmental sciences at IU as one of her bona fides. Um, do you know if she's going to get into regenerative agriculture well, I think by one of the areas um, that she will be talking about is agriculture. And um, one aspect of regenerative agriculture is cover cropping. 
because so a cover crop is a crop that you are planting with the intention of building soil, not harvesting the crop itself, but creating healthier soil for the next planting. And um, that is a key aspect of regenerative agriculture. Yeah, because there are some big claims out there about how that can actually sequester carbon into the soil. We think about it with the trees, but mm -hmm. another new aspect that there's some dispute around is how much can actually be taken into the soil. Some some claim it could sort of take all of our largesse into the soil. Others say, uh, not so much. So um, I think it's somewhere in that it it um, is an important additional thing that we can do, but it alone will not <laughs> um, prevent catastrophic climate change. It needs to be part of a whole host of um, of different um, strategies. And that is the understanding that people some people are latching on to that we're not going to prevent catastrophic climate change but we can mitigate it uh there was kind of a previous apathy toward just focusing on economics but then now they see how the economics are affecting everyday life i believe this is kind of the summer where some of the last of the denialists ha are giving up on trying to refute that climate shift is occurring and uh but some some still some still refuse to acknowledge it of course um and are promoting just even more doubling down on fossil fuel extraction you know for economic purposes um you guys uh you talked about clean energy um electrification as a way to uh, sort of transition lifestyles and systems to be operating on electricity. Indiana is still um, coal heavy. It's it's gotten better and switched some to natural natural gas. I don't know if you know the stats uh, about the percentages in Indiana, um, but what do you what do you guys uh, what do you what do you got going on as far as fostering that electrification effort in Indiana? So um, here in Indiana, well, I should say um, in our local group. So I also, I, um, the state coordinator, but then I work very closely with our South Central Indiana group. And um, we, decided to focus primarily on healthy forests and carbon fee and dividend and slowly build out our um, our skills, our knowledge and our volunteer base to take on more. But um, several of us also are folks who are involved in Green Drinks Bloomington. And um, on September 27th, um, Bill Brown will be the uh, presenting for our, we're so happy to have Green Dreams Bloomington coming back to the, the wood shop at the Upland. And so he'll be talking about 
you know, we've got these historic levels of funding through the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act. And so how people, businesses, nonprofits can access grants, loans, rebates, and other incentives um, for uh, implementing building electrification and efficiency and just outright solar panels. And yeah, so I think it'll be a really great talk. And um, there's, yeah, significant funding out there that is accessible to most households. Yeah, we've uh, spoken with Bill Brown previously as well. Um, He's with the Environmental Resilience Institute at IU, helping a lot of municipalities and organizations with the green energy transition and efficient building and all that as an eco-architect. Mm -hmm. So is there anything else that uh, you uh, want to highlight uh, or uh, call out people to get involved with? Well, I guess I'd just like to say, like, for me, you know, it's been this year, you mentioned it earlier, it has been pretty rough when it comes to climate news. 